Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's Q&As. It's Thursday morning, so hopefully people will have enough time to get their questions in, but let's jump in and see what we got. First up, over on Patreon, Weijlo has had an issue that's actually quite common and makes troubleshooting remotely kind of hard. So first of all, don't worry, you're not alone. This actually happens all the time. But let me see if I could at least provide some tips to point you in the right direction. They had an SNES Junior and they plugged one RGB cable into it and then realized, oh, this isn't modded. It's just a stock cable. And when they plugged the composite cable back in, there was no video. So this is hard because while Weijlo said they know that it's not caused by doing that, a lot of people think, oh, I plugged this cable into my console and it killed it, which is also hard to troubleshoot because sometimes a really badly made cable might actually cause something like that. If voltage is jumped to, you know, maybe one of the voltage or video voltage lines or something like that, you never really know. But what most likely would have happened in this scenario is that you had a solution that had something else wrong with it. A bad power supply is probably the most common scenario. You power on your console once and you get the, you know, let's just say that I know the SNES Junior doesn't have an LED, but let's say it did. You power on your console once, um, the LED light comes on, but then you realize, oh, I have HD retrovision cables plugged in and this is unmodded. So you, you unplug it, you plug in your composite cables, you turn it on and there's no LED light. What actually has happened most commonly is that your power supply is just dying. And if you had simply powered it on and off twice and never touched the cables, would have done the same thing. So this is unfortunately the trouble with trying to use 30 plus year old consoles is you're, you might always run into something like this. Same thing with any time there's the potential for aging components, you know, anything that needs capacitors, you could always run into stuff like this. So what I would do is first and foremost, check the fuse. So just take it apart, look for the fuse. It doesn't look like a fuse. It looks like a weird component and just use any multimeter, a $10 one, as long as you could get tone, that's all you need to know. So touch the two ends. If you get tone, it's not the fuse. Then next, I would try to look into a different power supply. If you have multiple SNES consoles that could use the same power supply, then that's a good way to test it. If it's an OEM or triad or, or good branded power supply. If you had got one of those like multiple consoles on one, uh, on one brick power supplies, at least ones that aren't tested by people in the community, throw it right in the garbage. It could be very well and most likely is the source of your issue. But if you're using an original SNES power supply, try it on multiples. And I have one that I keep 
for this exact reason. Because if I plug in this SNES power supply and do exactly what you just said, you know, you turn it on, everything's working, you power cycle it, it won't work the second time. So I'm keeping it both because I eventually want to cut it open with the Dremel and then just kind of see if I could, you know, is it the capacitor? Is it something else? But also because I like to show these examples. So power supply, fuse are the first things that I would check. Also, when you're troubleshooting, try anything you can to use multiple things on multiple consoles. So obviously you can't use the SNES power supply on an N64, but you certainly could use composite video cables. So plug those into your N64, make sure you get a composite signal, then move those cables over to the SNES Junior, kind of go from there. But if it's not basic things like cables, power supply, fuse, then you could be talking about quite a few different things. So pop it open, take some pictures, and possibly contact a local modder if you need to, to you know, to take a deeper look at it. But yeah, it's um, unfortunately just you're going to run into this stuff when uh, when you're dealing with older consoles. And you know, I actually had this with a motorcycle years ago. A neighbor asked me to borrow it, which was weird because that's a that's a, a reach right there. But they jumped on the bike and went down the street and they came back freaking out because second gear didn't work anymore. And I was polite because, you know, I'm stuck living next to him. And I went to talk to a friend of mine who was a bike mechanic at that point, And he just started laughing and he's like, yeah, they all do that. And I went, oh, so my neighbor didn't do it. He goes, no, definitely not. He goes, every one of this year, the transmission does that. You need to fix it. It's not that even that big a deal. We could fix it up here. So, so, you know, for luckily I had a friend that was honest. Otherwise I might've thought my neighbor ruined my motorcycle all these years and just was one of those things. So while, you know, to just swing back full circle here, while yes, absolutely buying, you know, terrible, unshielded, poorly made cables, you could potentially get the five volt pin going to one of the color pins or composite or something like that and blow out the chip on your console. With well-made cables, it's much, much less likely. There's always a possibility. You never know, but you're really lowering your chances of that happening, buying from from good cable manufacturers, which is why I always link to the good ones on RetroRGB.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Marcel Turin wanted to provide some additional info in response to JQ's question last week about light guns. In their personal setup, they run two PlayStation 1 consoles with the serial link cable and two fat PS2s with the Firewire link. That setup works flawlessly for compatible games, especially the Time Crisis titles, as each player has their own point of view on their respective monitor, just like in the arcade. That sounds awesome, by the way. Uh, To continue, for the full experience, they also wired two PS1 non-DualShock pads with headphone jacks connected to test points for one of the face buttons, and then connect those to the Yamaha sustain pedals that they use with their Rock Band guitars back in the day. 
Plugged into the free controller port on each console, each player effectively has their own arcade-style foot pedal. They've never attempted to run the same signal to two CRTs in the manner that Jake describes, and they're curious if it would work. They suppose if it's run through a distribution amp, each gun would just see an electron beam and a sync pulse, so it might actually work. I've never tried either, but I've never tried with a composite video distribution amp, but I absolutely have through a GSCART switch, which essentially would be the same thing. You're running that signal through an amplifier, which does not add any latency whatsoever. So unless it's something that would buffer and redraw the signal, like a scaler, I cannot imagine a scenario in which light guns would not work. Otherwise, everybody with a GSCART or a G-Comp would be complaining about this. So... Uh, Marcel, awesome setup. That sounds really cool and sounds like a lot of fun. But if you did ever want to split the video to multiple signals, I think using any kind of distribution amp or especially retro gaming focused powered amped switch would be completely fine. So awesome setup. Thanks for sharing. 60 frame per second said when they got their first and only pro CRT, the Ikigami 20 inch, they initially hadn't realized that 75 ohm terminators would be necessary for their use case. They ran it for about 30 minutes before they realized what they needed to do to keep the image from being so intense, and the correct answer didn't end up being just turn the brightness way down. Um, So, question number one, what sort of damage, if any, happens to a broadcast CRT when the signal isn't properly terminated? Um, In your case, probably nothing. There could always be a scenario, like I just talked about first with the SNES, in which you had a monitor that was just one breath away from dying anyway, and that could have killed it, but so might have touching it with a statically charged finger or something like that. It's possible that that could happen, but really, these things are designed to be in professional environments, and if it was that easy to kill it, everybody who spent thousands on these would have been complaining, like, hey, you need to add some protection. We just lost 10 grand in monitors this week because an intern forgot to connect one of the jumper cables or something. So while I would absolutely say, do not buy a pro monitor that requires terminators and just turn your brightness down, I will confidently say that. But if you did it in the scenario like you did, like I did once, um, I don't think you've killed your monitor. Question number two, is there any record outside of long-lost vendor catalogs of what the pricing used to be for pro CRTs? Uh, Mostly no. You could check stuff like Broadcast Store. However, a lot of these things were always call for pricing because while these had manufacturer-suggested retail pricing, MSRP type of things, they were always sold through distributors, or I think they were always sold through distributors. Like, you don't walk into Best Buy and buy a Sony BVM for twenty grand. You would have to go through your rep, and very often it was coupled with things like, and this is a guess, by the way, I should clarify, I'm guessing that it was coupled with things like support packages, and, you know, if you go through reseller ABC, you could pick one up and have them come every six months to make sure it's calibrated, stuff like that. So the price may have been different every time you bought it. That was also a huge thing up into the mid-2000s. Any of my fellow old people will remember this. You would often go into a high-end audio video store and buy something for like, well, I wouldn't, but you could go in for buy something for like four, five, six thousand dollars $6,000, come to find out that, that whatever that was, was actually only really a $1,000 item. And these local installers would make their money on, they'd only sell for a year, but it would be a massive profit. Whereas the big box stores would sell 4,000 a year at a much smaller profit. And that was kind of the way with all retail. I remember the first time 
uh, car stereo speakers were available online, I realized that the place that a cousin of mine was going to to get a good deal on speakers was actually paying four times what the local dealer paid. And unfortunately, a lot of those stores, well, or maybe fortunately, depending on how you look at it, a lot of those stores had a choice of dying or adapting. And that's why you saw a lot of these places like, you know, Joe's audio video TV store, rather than making a 500% markup on a TV, they made about the same as Best Buy would have, but then they charged you a fair price to install it. And now you have a tech that maybe you've known for years that you know does a good job because they've done it before rather than a big box store. So it's kind of one of those, you know, I'm going way off topic here, but it, it what you just the question you asked just kind of sparked memories of like the late 90s early 2000s and people discovering the markups that a lot of these stores had and you know unfortunately it's swung the other way now if something costs 100 bucks to make and people charge you know 175 the internet loses their mind because of look at how much you're ripping us off not counting all of the crazy behind the scenes prices that goes into this including development so Hopefully we can swing back in the middle somewhere where everybody can get their fair profit, uh, but we don't get those scenarios where somebody's buying an $8,000 TV that's actually a $1,000 TV with a new badge on it. So um, yeah, sorry to get off topic there. You just brought me down memory lane. So hopefully I was able to at least add some perspective for this stuff. Oliver Clare has been doing some work on the wiki regarding audio formats for consoles and had a couple of questions. So this is a long one, so I'm going to try to blow through it. No disrespect to you, Oliver. I'm just trying to make it uh, fun to listen to, get to all of your answers, and not ramble on for an hour like I'm, like I'm usually tending to do. So first, Oliver came up with a list of sound technologies that have been implementing in home gaming consoles over the years, and basically also home theater, starting with mono all the way up to more modern ones. They're going to double check anything, but does it look like they've made any big omissions? No, I skimmed through the page, which of course I'll link here for everybody. It looks like it's all there. From that list, there's obviously a ton of different formats that could broadly be described as surround sound, but are there any weird subtypes of mono or stereo that should be separately highlighted? Not including stuff like Q-Sound that's trying to use two speakers to create sound, or for our purposes, or for our purposes, is mono simply mono and stereo is always simply stereo? So mono, I think, is always mono, especially in the context of video games, with the only exception being Genesis 1, where the DIN gets you, in, in Neo Geo, the DIN gets you mono, but the headphone jack gets you stereo. But I think you already have that kind of nailed. Um, but the mono question, if anybody else is out there who has, just out of curiosity, any info on that for older audio formats for listening, that would be interesting. Stereo is not simply stereo, though, because you do have formats like ProLogic that also kind of uh, add different formats. And then there was the quad stereo thing in the 70s that a couple of records had. Um, but then you would also need quad record players in order to decode those signals. So I, I don't know... Uh, if that's something you'd even want to get into or if it even matters in the context of video games. So anybody out there, do you know of any format other than just Dolby ProLogic uh, or Dolby Surround, which is the original one, that that could have been implemented into video games? Was there ever like a quad stereo? I seriously doubt it, but you know, you never know. We've seen some weird stuff. Uh, question regarding older mono systems that could be modded for stereo sound, fake stereo sound like the Atari 2600 or the NES. If the game developers didn't create proper stereo mixes at the time, is a stereo mod adding much of a benefit? This is 100% up to preference, uh, preference and up to you. 
Some people look at it the same way I tease Ian, historical nerd, about sometimes stretching games to 16 by 9 and think it's blasphemous and you should never do it. Other people think it's a neat way to add stereo, and I kind of think it's somewhere in the middle. Uh, but this is just my opinion, not fact. I like Atari 2600, just mono. It's just mostly beeps and bloops anyway, so I like it just like that. And with the NES, I like some separation of the audio channels. So all it's doing in both cases is taking multiple audio channels that are combined to mono and separating them. So some go to one speaker and some go to the other. And I like a tiny bit of separation so that they're mostly mono, but you do kind of get that weird sense of depth in it. However, a lot of people hate that. So um, I would say if is a stereo mod adding much of a benefit? I don't, I, I would say no unless it's something that you know that you prefer to. Like, I, I guess the stance I've taken on this is I present the information that it's there. I let everybody know that most people don't like it, but some people do. So here's what you could do if you want to do, do it that way. <clears throat> Maybe that'll kind of help. Maybe I just made things worse. I don't know, but let me keep going. Four, do I need specific amplifiers, receivers, or speakers to take advantage of technologies that are trying to create 3D audio using two speakers, like QSound or Roland Surround Space. Yes, you need amps that have the decoders built in. And that is a video that I will be releasing. I'm trying to get to it before the end of the year. But as you may have seen, I'm battling with the company NAD Electronics because I bought an amp for $1,600, by far the most money I have ever spent on a home audio component by far. And they still have issues with HDMI. And for the past six months, I've been getting answers like, did you try another HDMI cable? It's actually one of the only times I, this may have been the only time in my entire life I was ever in an email. Like, I think you need to look up who I am. I'm this guy. And I sent a link to like all you know, a bunch of pages and videos about cables. Like, please stop asking me if I've checked the cables. I wrote the book on some of these cables, holy shit. And they still keep coming back with, well, maybe you need a different cable. So once I work through and fix their amp for them, sorry, but it's actually, you know, sorry to use uh, your, your post Oliver to vent, but I'm still pissed about this. That's when I will finish the surround sound video, then the older format video, and then the two channel audio video will be audio video. <laughs> it will be last. So, uh, but to answer your question, yes, you need to have the decoder built into the amp. Um, Next, they understand the PC Engine TurboGrafx-16 was the first home console to ship with stereo output. As the supported, all, uh, supported audio formats column is supposed to list all the potential formats, they're also putting mono as an option besides every console that came after the TurboGrafx-16. The assumption that they're making is that all stereo-capable consoles had an option to combine audio to mono that sounds the same on all speakers. Is that a safe assumption to make? Uh, yes, because no matter what, if you had a TV with just one input, you could safely use a Y cable to combine audio for both audio left and right channels to one mono. Uh, off topic, if anybody is wondering why it's okay to use Y cables or Y circuits with audio, or at least safe to and not video, please check out the video I did with Steve from HD Retrovision. I'll add that link too. Uh, but never use Y cables or circuits with video, but safe to do so with audio. Um, Continuing, they're thinking about how to decide if they should list a given stereo console as 2.1 capable or just 2.0. The 2.1 part, the point one is the subwoofer. 
So I would list it as only 2.0 capable unless for unless there is an audio format out there that will send discrete signals to left, right, and sub. I don't think that exists, though. I think all 2.0 or, or even 4.0 based systems just relied on your stereo to cut off the low end frequency and send that to the subwoofer. But I might be full of shit about that one. So if anybody thinks I'm wrong, please chime in. That is just an educated guess, if you will. Alternatively, they could list only the consoles, list only consoles as 2.1 capable if they have their own built-in subwoofer jack, like the Panasonic Q GameCube, so they don't need the amp. Yes, so you just answered your own question. So, great idea. I like that a lot. Uh, If it has its own subwoofer jack, you could list that as 2.1, and if not, it's up to the amp. The only thing I will add to this is when I am done with that Dolby surround video, older surround formats on modern receivers, I will send you all of the test files I have. So um, in the video itself is going to be skip to this timestamp to just get the test patterns. But if you want to host those on the wiki, I will gladly put those up for you. Or if Durf feels like there might be some copyright infringement potential, I could put them up on RetroRGB and you could just link to those up on, on our website and I'll deal with the copyright part because I have no worries about Dolby suing me for using a test pattern from 40 years ago. <laughs> so um, so I think that solves, or I think that sums everything up. Um, I know I kind of skimmed through it, but hopefully I was able to just add some perspective. Oliver wanted to follow up with one more on that one. What happens if a mod you carry out on a retro console breaks compatibility with your AVR? So, um, One example might be if you do a digital audio mod to a Super Nintendo or Sega Saturn, the audio format that's outputted through the digital out might not work with your stereo. So if you wanted to add that, you could, if you chose to, add a column that just says digital output mod may or may not be compatible with all receivers. Another example Oliver gave is what if your PS1 has a PS1 digital installed? Now, the HDMI output obviously won't work with a 90s AVR, but would a modern AVR with HDMI inputs be backward compatible with the old 4.0 Dolby Surround format? Yes, this all comes down to your receiver. So what I show in the video, which doesn't exist yet, and what, uh, you know, what I, the testing I've been doing here, I'm trying to be really thorough on this testing because I don't want to put out, like making a mistake here in the Q&As sucks. I'd rather not make a mistake, but I think everybody understands this format. If I make a formal video explaining this stuff and I make a mistake, it eats away at me. So being extra thorough with the testing. However, what I've found is that if you have <clears throat> a signal that is like Dolby Surround, ProLogic 1, ProLogic 2, but coming through two channels. So it doesn't matter if it's RCA, HDMI, digital SPDIF, or anything like that. The, the encoding of the surround sound is in those channels. So as long as your receiver can decode it, it could decode it over HDMI, SPDIF, and RCA. It's not, I have not yet run into a scenario where the same receiver can decode ProLogic over RCA, but not HDMI. Now, once again, I'm trying to be more thorough. I'm going to add these disclaimers to the video. If anybody runs into this, please let us know. But to be very clear, on the same receiver, not two different brands or anything like that, uh, if it works with one, it works with all. So I don't think you would ever have to worry about that. Also, um, depending on your HDMI mod, you might actually retain analog audio output. And there are absolutely 
scenarios in which audiophiles might say, hey, I want to use the analog output of this console to go to my audio, and then I want to use the HDMI output to go on my flat panel. And one of those might actually be that receiver that I've been ranting about has an analog bypass mode. So it bypasses all of the digital signal processing if you run just any analog signal in. And depending on what you're looking to accomplish, that might be your preferred sound in the moment. Better is relative. Some people might go, that's noisy. Why would you want, why would you prefer that? Other people might say, oh, I love the unfiltered look. That's a preference though. And that's more of like audio expert, audio file type of thing. So in the context of your question, the only thing I might add is consoles that potentially have incompatible signals with some receivers. But if you're talking about the surround sound formats, I would not worry about that at all. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Quantum Guitar said they went back to using their original PlayStation 2 to play PS1 and 2 games, as opposed to their CECH A01 Launch Edition PS3, but... The fan is driving them crazy. Do I know of any quiet replacement fans I could recommend? Uh, there was one eBay seller I'd worked with a few years ago who I'd bought one of their fans, and they said that they were working on another design for a newer one. I think Greg from Laser Bear may have been trying to work on something like that. So I would just, uh, I would kind of search around for anybody in the community who has a reputation for doing this stuff and see what they have for sale. There could potentially be like a Noctua fan replacement with a proper uh, adjustment and a 3D bracket for it, a 3D printed bracket for it or something like that. But I would start with Laser Bear, Retro Frog, and then kind of just go through and, and see if there are people in the community that are making this. I lost, uh, I lost touch with the eBay seller. I was talking to you about this. Uh, I think I have the fan sitting next to me in a box, but I've never installed it. So I can't really add any perspective, but I would just start with, um, I would kind of just start with the usual suspects and go from there. Cam wants to know if you could build some kind of arcade stick or Vulex style arcade cab where the control panels, buttons and stick would be able to be used one at a time for everything modern consoles, older consoles, Mr. And yes, there are projects out there. I believe Arcuda was working on one. I could be wrong about that. Tim Worthington was working on one. Uh, there's the MC Cthulhu stuff, which you can't really get anymore. But I think uh, I, Jose is building a, a box for me. So you could put DB15 in and then the output is looks like a network shack. And then you just build custom cables that go to all of these. I think Brooke has stuff like that as well. 
Uh, I know the Rook fighting that I have in my Vulix arcade stick, not the full cabinet, has uh, a way so that you could output either USB or you could just kind of jump those to have DB15 output so you could have kind of the same as what you're talking about. So, yes, there are tons of devices that do that. I'm not sure which one does it the best, though. So you might want to look into that. It's uh, I would look at some arcade forums and stuff like that and see what other people are using. But I really like that idea. And I, the uh, this was started, well, I started my project on this because I thought it was fun ever since I got that really nice arcade stick. Why not use that with all my consoles when I'm playing fighting games on them? So, you know, if I whip out Eternal Champions on Genesis, I'd love to use it with my actual arcade stick and not a Genesis pad or the awful Genesis arcade stick. Or in what probably makes more sense for things like Dreamcast, so you can play a lot of the good fighting games there. But it definitely exists. You're just going to have to do some hunting down for it and see which one is the best at the moment. Or maybe there's multiple that are excellent and you get to choose which one is best for your features that you're looking for. So something that I would really like to dig into it in the future, but that's kind of low on my list on uh, versus other stuff that I feel like I need to get to. No disrespect. I still think it's awesome, but I have like a pile of mostly finished projects. I got to just finish off before going to the next Belmont wanted to start a conversation, kind of like a friendly social media style conversation about what is everyone's preferred activity when a project is proving troublesome and you're in need of a small break. For Belmont, walking the dog provides a level of clarity for them to come back to the project strong. For me personally, with my crazy ADH brain, if I go for a walk with nothing else to think about but that walk, uh, including even if I have headphones in, I'm just going to obsess over whatever the thing was that I was doing, and it's not really going to help clear my brain at all. Probably help me lose some weight, but for me, I always like to be working on multiple projects at once. And uh, T always teases me about this because I'll be working on one thing. It'll be like that movie Up where it's like, squirrel, and I'll see something shiny and go running to the other project. But having a bunch of stuff going on at once really helps me with that because my nerd brain gets to keep going, but if I'm just beating my head up against the wall on the other, uh, on one project, I just turn around, start working on another one, and kind of go from there. Um, the only other thing that I personally do is there are some days that I just can't think at all, and I think all humans probably go through this. And I remember many times being in an office job where it just, I, I couldn't get it together. You know, I was barely cutting it, and maybe around 3 p.m., suddenly, it's, I, I'm cleared up and I'm thinking again. And next thing you know, it's time to go home. So I basically wasted a day. But doing this for a living and working out of my house, that allows me to go do something completely different. So it's like, okay, I need to, you know, go re rebuild the, you know, exhausted my truck or something like that. Or, you know, let me go put up a door somewhere and just go do something completely different and then come back later in the day. And then rather than work from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., maybe I'm working from noon till till 10 p.m. I still get a full day's worth of work in, but I'm actually productive because then I just go swap around. But of course, unless you have project-based work, if you're supposed to be, you know, between eight and six at your desk, you don't really have that option. So it's one of the reasons, I'm not trying to rub it in, sorry, I do very much love doing this for a living, but my efficiency is just 10 times what it was in an office job because I could always be working on something. And even if my brain's not cutting it, I could go do some manual labor. And, you know, sometimes when you're having those days and you do manual labor, you know, your cuts are a little off or the grass isn't exactly cut right. But 
that's how I keep going is just constantly keeping myself busy with multiple projects that span everything you could imagine. Kyle's got a pretty good question that I have an opinion on, but I don't know the exact technical answer to it. They want to know if there's any rule of thumb to go by when replacing game save batteries. They have a few Game Boy games and a multimeter to test the batteries, but they're not sure what a healthy charge should be. Is there a certain voltage they could let it get down to before replacing them? Or would I recommend replacing them all since they're at least 30 years old? Well, if you have the ability to back up and restore your game saves via any of those external devices, Sandy Cart Reader is the one that I've been using, I would just do it all. You could buy a, you know, a 50 pack of these batteries and uh, for very cheap if you just find the right seller. And it's something that you could probably just do. Maybe you do maybe you do two a weekend until it's all done or something like that. I don't know. Or get like me and obsess over it and sit down and do it all in one shot, whatever, whatever is your preferred go-to, but that's what I would do. And I also would have a couple other opinions and like, if you're worried about this, just do it. Even if it's on only on your favorite games, but if you're in a situation where you don't have a card reader yet, cart reader yet, um, you don't know how many of the carts that you have have old batteries in it. I would open it up, very carefully test with the multimeter and see if it's close to the labeled voltage. So if it's a 3 volt, 3.3 volt battery and you're very close to 3 volts, 2.9, 3.2, 3.5, fine. But if you see it dropping lower, it may be right on the cusp of losing your game save. So if it's your favorite cart mail it to somebody you know that has a a dumper so you can get your save game file saved and go from there. Um, But if these things aren't, if saving the files aren't important to you, just making sure that the next time you play it, you're not going to get halfway through your game and lose it, then yeah, I would just start swapping them out and I wouldn't even look at the voltage because while yes, you could argue it's a waste of time and money, you could also argue that there is a finite lifespan for these batteries and we're we've already surpassed it in many cases so certainly not a bad thing in my opinion Seacon wants to know what's my opinion of adding an rgb amp and digitter combo board for an snes 101 i'm going to pause for a second and say i think you're talking about snes juniors minis basically the smaller cased version of the snes that has a one chip uh, in it that you required to add an RGB amp or restore to in order to get RGB output. If you mean one of the two PPU revisions, the original ones, then I'm not really sure. Maybe you're talking about a motherboard rev, but I'm going to proceed as if you're talking about the SNES mini or junior, depending on region. But to continue the question, their non-one-chip SNES through their OSSC sometimes has slight sync issues with their C7 OLED, and it could be pretty unplayable on friends' TVs, which is less important, but they can't know how their SNES Junior will perform until they install an RGB board, so they're wondering if they should bite that bullet now and get an RGB plus DJR solution. So here's my opinion. This is only my opinion. There are many people that disagree with me on this one. But I'm going to tell you my opinion just so you could base your answer on it. It's totally cool to disagree. The de-jitter board is a fix for any scaler that does not have the ability to buffer the SNES's signal. So you use something like the RetroTINK 5X, in, which is very low latency, even in the triple buffer mode, lower than the FrameMeister was, then that takes care of the de-jitter compatibility for you. And in fact, 
I think Mike has done quite a few improvements to those so that even in frame lock mode or the other new mode that was added, you you get better compatibility than you would have with just a basic line doubler. To add to that, the OSSC Pro uh, prototype that I had demoed back when I was still in New York was able to do SNES Junior with just an RGB amp, not the D-Jitter, in 5X mode on my LG OLED when the original OSSC would not, and the RetroTINK 5X in frame buffer mode would not, even though the OSSC Pro de- that I tried was still in line doubler mode. I think it had to do with the analog to digital converter that was used. So I'm word vomiting all of that to say to explain the, the D-Jitter board is a fix for your current setup. So my personal opinion would be get your RGB amp and then decide if you want the D-Jitter after that. Or if you think, hey, I'm going to be getting the RetroTINK 5X soon anyway. Hey, you know, my setup works good enough for now. I'll eventually be getting a RetroTINK 4K, you know, in a year and a half or whenever the part shortage ends and it comes out. You won't need that. It's not a fix for the Super Nintendo. It's a fix for your TV, essentially. So... If your question was, I just got an SNES Mini, an OSSC, and an OLED, and this is all I'm going to be using for at least the next five years, then I would say, you know what, throw the D-Jitter board in, and that way you could have a good setup. But if you're saying, hey, you know, I'm thinking of getting this, I'm thinking of getting that, here's my upgrade path, maybe just kind of deal with it as is. Uh, also, Seacon wanted to know if I knew if the LG C2 OLEDs are still a no-go for retro gamers, or has the latency issue been fixed by firmware revisions? Excellent question. I have no clue. Um, I was hoping somebody would do a follow-up video on that, or at least a post about it. Um, and obviously, anybody's welcome to post on retro RGB if you have some solid data on that as well. But I don't know the answer. But if you know it, please let us know. Josh Lopez has a friend with a 8-inch PVM that is only displaying a bright green tint over whatever they plug into it. They asked if they could take a look because they don't have the time or know how to troubleshoot the issue. As far as they know, they've only used the S-Video or composite inputs. Any pointers on what might be going on? They're picking it up this weekend, so expect a follow-up soon. Yeah, press all the buttons. I know that's such a dumb thing to say, but it is the honest answer. If you're looking at one, I have one next to me. So on the left side, there are six buttons that correspond to the inputs in the color format. There are also, uh, I'm going to step away from the mic for a second. Um, There's also bias and gain pots that you need a small screwdriver to get into. And then there's, of course, the main dials on it. Set all the main dials to the middle. Don't touch the bias and gain pots do that last just in case and then start pressing all six buttons and maybe look and see if there's a switch on the back some of them have those to switch between component or rgb so there's a chance that one of those toggles is the only issue there's also a chance that there's something wrong internally but it's such an easy thing to just press a bunch of buttons try a couple of inputs and see what you get that i would absolutely try that first and then kind of follow up. Uh, for the basic stuff, feel free to re-ask again here. If it turns out to be something internal, you're probably going to want to go to Steve from RetroTech. But yeah, let us know what happens with that. Jason Guffey says, If I recall, a few weeks back, I rudely suggested they cease their idle tinkering with the Rad 2X. They'll have me know that they've since put in a wee bit more time to get into the project, but only so much to actually get the Rad 2X's pinout. That's funny. Um, so... Jason figured out that the Rad 2X is pulling sync from the console's composite video pin. 
not C-Sync, which the reason for that is because not all of the sync pinouts are the same on every console, but composite video is the same pin on, on every console. Best example, and the reason for this, the NTSC model Super Nintendo's, both Japanese and North American, output sync on C-Sync. The PAL ones output 12 volts. So if you were to have something that synced on C-Sync, that's why on the retro RGB cable page, there's so many warnings about do not use an NTSC cable on a PAL system. There's also other reasons for that, but that is the issue. So that's why, same with HD retrovision cables, it's just much easier. But that doesn't really matter for your testing. The only thing that matters is the voltage. So what I mean by that is the circuit on the RAD 2X is, or I guess even the HD retrovision cables, is expecting the voltage that you would get from a composite video signal. You could send the same voltage just sync signal to a sync stripper, and it doesn't do anything. Might make it a little bit worse, might shift it to the side, there, you know, but it's really not a bad thing overall. You don't have to worry about damaging anything. However, if you send a high voltage signal to that sync stripper circuit, that is expecting the lower voltage one, the output will be amplified from the high level. So I'm going to use arbitrary numbers. This is not what the sync voltage is, but let's say 75 ohm C-Sync is one. And when it outputs through the sync stripper, the circuit's built to make sure that that's amplified to two. If you send a TTL level that's at a five, that might output at a 10 and blow out anything past it. Once again, arbitrary numbers just used for visualization. So in your context, in the context of what you're doing, you don't need any kind of crazy converter. You need probably a 470 ohm resistor or maybe a 680 ohm resistor. Try the higher resistor first. If you get no signal, then move it down. A scope would be best, but this is probably one of those cases uh, that you could just get away with dropping the voltage because the worst that could happen is it doesn't get the signal. So. Um, that is something that I would recommend. I wouldn't worry about any of that other conversion stuff. Good thoughts, but nope, that completely unnecessary. All you need to do is feed that sync stripper the, the proper voltage of a sync signal that it's expecting, and it should be good. Now, I still don't think this is a project that um, that most people would want to spend their time doing when there's other options. However, I did want to take the time to explain it, both because I do want to help your project, but also anytime you have a scenario like that, where you're using something that has a sync stripper built in, that's the stuff that you have to worry about. And that is where stuff like the powered otaku switch comes into play. And that was my big warning for that one. Because if you just plugged in all of your consoles, it worked fine. But if you had a console and had a sync stripper in the SCART head, like those retro gaming cables, PS1 uh, C-Sync cables, I wish Rob would re rename those. They have a very specific use. Anybody with a cross point knows that. But if you plugged one of those into it, so now you have a sync stripper going into a sync stripper, that's when you start to need to pay attention to this stuff. Um, so hopefully my explanation will help anybody messing around with mixing circuits like this as well as your project, but give that a try and see what happens. Shorjor Steinholm has a question that makes me think you've never played guitar in a live gig scenario before. I'll get to my tease. I'll explain my tease in a second. Their question is, they just watched a video on Passive Homes where everything was powered by DC current. 
They were thinking they were thinking of pursuing something similar would be worth the hassle for retro. They'd start at making their gaming setup as power efficient as possible, and then have one big power supply for all the consoles and equipment that are DC powered. Are there any power supplies I could recommend? None. And here's why. When you have AC to DC converters, you're all on your own isolated circuit. When you mix DC signals, you're sharing grounds between all of your devices. So while, yes, you can absolutely have ground loop issues with AC, it's always going to happen on DC. So you could have a scenario in which you have all of your consoles powered off except one. You turn that console on. Uh, all of your consoles powered off and wired together in the setup that you're talking about. You turn one on and then you'll get interference on the screen. But you pull that power cord out and you get just a basic AC to DC power supply and there's no interference. Same thing with audio buzz, which brings me to my stupid tease at the beginning. I drove myself crazy trying to get DC power distribution for my guitar pedal back you know, five years ago. And this wasn't even like 20 years ago. This was fairly recent. And the amount of money that you would have to spend on a DC distribution amp like that far, far exceeded the amount of money of just buying a decent quality power supply for each and having an AC power strip in my pedal board. And I've argued with musicians about this before, and it's always kind of baffling to me. Um, but a lot of musicians say that they don't have that issue. But with all of the respect in the world, I don't think they're live musicians. I think they're home musicians because you notice it most when you're going from gig to gig. Some power is noisier than others. Some other components plugged in might be messing with it. But the point in word vomiting about that, you know, you're not taking your setup from house to house to house. However, what about the opposite? So let's just say you spend all of this time and money building this DC distribution setup and everything's working and it costs you probably a hundred times what it would have cost to just buy a couple of cheap AC bricks like the triads and some power strips. And then you add one more device and that new device just messes up and creates interference on all the rest. So it's the same thing, but the opposite. So I would strongly recommend never doing this. Now, people disagree. I think Corey from My Life in Gaming does it, and he said he doesn't have any issue at all. But anybody who's ever played a live gig before, and yesterday's gig went absolutely perfect, and then today's gig, you plug in your guitar, you plug in your amp, you turn on your amp, and all you hear is... There are many of us out there, and we are scarred for life with that PTSD. So I just want to... Even if I'm slightly wrong, and there are new technologies that filter DC better... I would much, much rather give you the advice that saves you a ton of money and a potential pile of headaches. I'd much rather be wrong and give that advice than try to teach you how to do all that extra filtering stuff, which might not even work at the end anyway. So anybody that disagrees, please talk about it in the comments. I never have a problem being wrong. But the only thing I will not listen to is I've played five gigs and I've never had a hum. Yeah, well... Wait till you get to like 100 gigs, and then you'll slowly change your mind about all of this stuff. So hopefully, uh, sure, sure, hopefully you, you got my tease and weren't offended by it or anything. But I really am honestly just trying to point you in a direction that's going to save you so much money and effort. But if you're dead set on doing this, I could try to have some other recommendations. But I think you'd be better off with just an AC power strip and a bunch of really good triads or something like that. 
Before I go, I wanted to ask for all of your help with something. I think the conversation I was just having with Oliver about audio really sparked this. But does anybody have test patterns for audio channels that were sent over to channel audio? So while if you have a 5.1 or a 7.1 test pattern, sure, I'm all ears. I would, I would love to, to have that in my archive of stuff. But what I need is... Uh, test patterns for this video about surround sound over two-channel audio. At the moment, I have a Laserdisc that's an official Dolby Surround Laserdisc. I also have Dolby ProLogic, and I have Dolby ProLogic 2 test files that I ripped from some GameCube games. So are there other formats out there, and are there test patterns? Is there a Q-Sound test? Is there any other format out there that you think is involved in video games that I could have a test pattern? And the one thing I don't want, and I mean this with love, not disrespect, I don't want answers like, oh, load up Star Fox and you can hear, you know, when, when things go around you. That's awesome and I appreciate it, but I'm looking for things that are very easy to test. Like the, the file that I shared a month ago with all supporters and, uh, to try to get some feedback on that. Stuff that has an on-screen video that shows like left speaker and a sound coming out of there, a rear speaker, and, you know, sound coming out of there. Very blatant test files. If anybody has any, please let me know. And also, uh, there is one, there's one thing I keep seeing that I don't have solid info on. My gut tells me this is wrong, but I, I wanted to ask you all as well. There are, there is a Dolby Surround logo that used to be on VHS tapes back in the day, occasionally, that some people say it's just a logo. It's just the, hey, this VHS tape has Dolby Surround on it. Other people say that the logo is supposed to go around you in a setup that is Dolby Surround compatible in order to, to really show you that it's in surround sound. I have that Laserdisc that works with Dolby Surround, but every version of this opening logo is only in stereo for me. So can anybody confirm, do you have a VHS tape with this logo on there? Do you have a ProLogic or Dolby Surround setup that you know works? Is it actually in surround sound? Uh, so if you don't care about any of this stuff, I'm sorry to waste your time, but hopefully there's other audio nerds out there that could help me with this solid info so I could just finish up that surround over two channel video and kind of go from there. But anyway, as always, thank you to everybody who participates in these. Um, if you have any questions, just leave them in the latest Q&A post wherever you support the way the services work. I can't really figure out what's a new post on an old, uh, old Q&A thing, but I also really just like answering them in real time like I did today because it kind of makes it feel like we're just having a conversation. So thank you all for your support. I really appreciate it. And I'll see you next week.